Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode of America Adapts. This is the third episode in a four-part series I'm doing with Anita Van Breda of World Wildlife Fund. This episode is focusing on nature-based solutions and international collaborations in flood management. These conversations came out of a workshop I attended in Santa Cruz, California, where the Army Corps of Engineers brought together some of the world's best flood managers to develop guidelines on the use of natural and nature-based features. The group also hosted a natural and nature-based features symposium that I was invited to speak at. I talked about innovative ways to communicate science, and of course, I focused on the podcast. We also did some great field trips in the San Francisco Bay Area, seeing a lot of Earth moving in anticipation of future sea level rise. Let me just say, earth moving adaptation is happening right now. It's not some future issue. I want to highlight that this is a four-part series and it has been generously sponsored by World Wildlife Fund. I greatly appreciate their interest in using podcasting as a storytelling device to share important information. They have been great partners and I encourage you to check out the resources they provide in my show notes. We want this series to become a major resource to not only flood planners, but the general public that wants to be better informed on what's happening in this critical area of design disaster management. Okay, some brief housekeeping. Quickly, if you're listening to this on YouTube, consider subscribing to America Adapts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search America Adapts in each of those apps. That way, each new episode will be waiting for you when they are published. Okay, upcoming episodes. This new year is off and running. I'm talking with a landscape architect who is in the thick of adaptation planning in New York City. Learn the nitty gritty of adapting to climate change in a major metropolitan area. Also, I'm interviewing a planner and a lawyer on legal liability and climate adaptation. Jesse Keenan from Harvard University is coming back on to talk about the state of adaptation and his new book on adaptation financing. And I'll be talking with former National Park Service cultural adaptation coordinator Marcy Rockman. Go behind the scenes at the Park Service and learn what adapting cultural resources to climate change really means. I'm also, and this is very exciting, working on a semester-long podcast with Lad Keith at the University of Arizona. We're going to track the evolution of students taking an adaptation course that he's leading. And that's just what's in the pipeline. Much more is to come this year. Also, this is a very busy month for me. I'm lecturing in three separate university classes. First, I'm leading a lecture on podcasting in general at the University of Waterloo in Canada. I'm also doing a lecture on the state of adaptation for the University of New Brunswick. I'm obviously Skyping in for those. And then I'm doing a lecture on adaptation for a planning class at the University of Arizona. I love doing these lectures. Great chance to share stories from the podcast with university students and share generally what's going on with adaptation. If you are interested, please reach out and give me a holler if this is something that you think would be beneficial to your students. All right, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Thanks to all the recent donors at the end of the year please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. You can find links to the We Did It Donate page in the show notes. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring a specific podcast like this episode is sponsored by World Wildlife Fund or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I'm doing some keynote presentations and they're a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences and adaptation. You can contact me via the website americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, episode three begins right now. Hey, Adapters, I am back with a very familiar voice, Anita Van Breda, Senior Director of Environment and Disaster Management of World Wildlife Fund. Welcome back, Anita. Thanks, Doug. How are you? I am doing fabulous. So we meet again. What brings you on America Daps? So we are here today for the third episode of this Flood Green Guide series, and thank you for all your effort helping us to communicate on the value of using natural and nature-based features as a method for flood risk management. Well, I think I joked that in the last episode, I thought, oh, you know, these might actually not be very popular. These will be sort of the boring episodes, but they have been wildly popular. The downloads on the first two episodes have been great, and I'm very excited to be sharing this. And so I guess for listeners who don't know what episodes one and two are about, could you really quickly summarize episode one and episode two. So in episode one, we spoke to some flood experts and water management experts on some of the basics and fundamentals of watershed management and how water moves through 
an area and what that means for the communities that live in those places and a little bit of the history of how communities around the world have struggled with dealing with the risks that floods can present to us, but also importantly, what are some of the benefits that we can derive from floods and how do we manage our approach to floods, maximizing the benefits and minimizing or eliminating as much as possible any risks that floods can provide. And then in the second episode, we talked about community engagement in various ways that people are trying to be creative and innovative around engaging with communities. And so we had a lot of conversations there about art and artists and what that means for risk, what that means for understanding how our future is changing and how we can engage people in those issues. Okay. And I, I the title of the episode two is something like flood management and the role of art. And I always thought that was a bit jarring, but it, it is, I think, a innovative way to think about communicating these issues out there. So uh, I was very excited to cut the feedback to that episode. Yes. And now people are learning, right? Doug, that floods are not boring. Right. They're not boring any number of ways. You've explained what the first two episodes are, but I just want you also to briefly explain what is why are we even doing this multi-part series? What's sort of this broader initiative that you're doing at World Wildlife Fund? So World Wildlife Fund, we have our natural and nature-based flood management program. We issued guidelines on this issue in 2017, and we're putting the finishing touches on a training curriculum to support the use of that flood guide. And as we've talked about throughout this discussion, Doug, part of what we need to do to promote and support resiliency in communities is to learn and to experience different issues and learn from different perspectives. And so we have expanded this originally three-part series into four because we are finding so many people to talk to from so many different perspectives, and we want to keep that conversation going because as we use approaches like natural and nature-based features, we need to learn more about how they work, where they work, what some of the challenges are, what some of the opportunities are, and then to help people get more involved and contribute to those emerging practices. So, I'm hoping that we can keep this going for a very long time because I know I'm learning a lot and I hope that your listeners are as well. They certainly are. Okay, so most of the conversations in this episode were recorded at a workshop in Santa Cruz, California. Can you talk about what that event was about and why were we there to capture the interviews that we did? Well, we're there because WWF has joined the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers flood guide development process. And yes, there are many flood guides, and we're going to talk a little bit more about why that is throughout the episode. But we're part of that writing team, and there was a workshop in Santa Cruz in California, and we had the opportunity to visit with some of the people who are contributing to that effort and get different perspectives from different parts of the world. And so I think we're fortunate to be able to share that now with your listeners as well. That was a fantastic choice for a location of a workshop right there, uh, literally in eyesight of the Pacific Ocean and the beautiful campus of UC Santa Cruz. It was a delight to be there. Okay, so who are the experts in this episode? And what I think is fantastic, again, is that we have a lot of international voices in this episode. Could you just line us up here? Sure. So you're going to be talking with Todd Bridges, who heads up the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Engineering with Nature program, and he'll explain more about what that is. We're also going to talk with Kath Brooks, who's with the Environment Agency in the U.K., and she's going to talk about community engagement work. Then we have a gentleman from Canada, Mr. N. Murphy, who's an engineer who's got some interesting perspectives of his work up in Canada. And then we also have Maria Dillard, who's with the National Institute for Science and Technology, which I did not know was involved with flood-related work. But they're doing really cool things, and we're going to hear more from her on that. Okay, Anita, let's get this started, and I will be talking with you as we wrap up the, the end of the episode. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Doug. Hey, Adapters, we are back, and I am with... Todd Bridges. I'm the Senior Research Scientist 
with the Army Corps of Engineers for Environmental Science, and I'm the national lead for our Engineering with Nature initiative. Okay, so what did we just do this whole week? So this week we had our fifth in-person working meeting of a group, an international group, that we're using to develop a guideline for the use of what we call natural and nature-based features to address uh, flood risk management challenges and opportunities. And natural nature-based features represent essentially landscape features like beaches and dunes and wetlands and reefs and subaquatic vegetation and complexes of those in the form of islands to reduce our flood risks, enhance our resilience, whether in coastal environments or river or fluvial systems. And this group, a very dynamic group from around the world, several countries, from government, from private sector, from NGOs, and uh, from universities around the world, have come together to join forces to draw their experience and knowledge base into developing this guide that practitioners can use to implement these kinds of strategies. Todd, what sorts of training do you think will be needed in the future to really move the whole issue of nature and natural-based features along? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Anita. Step one is to get ink on paper, organized thought and procedure and concepts, but that has to be followed up with perhaps a, even a range of training uh, opportunities, including web-based training where you can have a broad reach to almost every individual on the planet. But that has to be complemented with, I believe, you know, face-to-face training where students, if you will, those who want to come and learn can interact directly with those who have experience and knowledge, and then they can work out together you know, the opportunities and address challenges in a more specific way than you can do with more distance-based learning. And then by that method, the face-to-face method, you also can grow your community in an organic and human way to even further advance implementation of these kinds of approaches. Okay, so you brought together all these people from all over the world, and this is an extended process. It's taking a while. The guidebook will, I I don't know if you could explain when it's ultimately going to be published, but were there any moments where people don't necessarily agree? The Dutch played a big part. Do they do things a little bit differently than the Americans? Any moments like that during this process? Right, that's a very good question. There's a there's a process any group like this goes through, you know, this sort of forming, storming, norming, and performing process. And I've seen that play out in our dynamic. We've, we've been at this for two years now at this point. And even though everybody involved in this has something to contribute and has really an, a deep knowledge and experience, you have to come together and formalize that. Right. You need to be able to convert your personal intuition, if you will, into something that somebody can follow based on your kind of description of that and representation of that. And that takes time. There's different combinations of challenges and opportunities in different places in the world. But in my opportunities to travel and interact with people in this community and others around this topic, uh, there's more in common than there is dissimilar. The, the dissimilarities actually are very helpful when you see them and can experience them in revealing nuances that allow you to, you know, address in a, yeah, I think, a more effective way uh, the challenges toward implementation. But we have much more in common in this topic around the world than I think we have difference. Todd, Doug and I are working on trying to tell the story of natural and nature-based features for flood management, and that was one of your key recommendations at the at the end of your closing remarks the other day. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by storytelling and how you see that fitting into a role for engineers and environmentalists and policymakers and decision makers trying to utilize natural and nature-based features? Right. Another good question, Anita. Storytelling is so important in this topic. And really, most topics that have a a dose of innovation, particularly a significant innovative element to them, you know, you have a practice that's emerging and, and is being implemented and maybe departs in some fashion from standard or conventional practice. And when you have those circumstances, you need to be able to persuade others who come with legitimate questions, right? It's not all cynical skepticism, if you will, but with legitimate questions. And they need to be persuaded 
with evidence and data and information, but that data, evidence and information has to be assembled in a, into a story, right? There has to be a narrative for you to make the necessary connections so that people can really get on the train and move down the track. And so yesterday, as you pointed out, I challenged our entire community to do everything they could do personally to become better storytellers. Technical fields, whether it's science or engineering, can be dry. And while that dryness, you know, is comforting perhaps to those who are within those fields, it's really not a sound basis for the storytelling that needs to extend beyond the specific technical discipline, but goes to the community, right? And to the decision makers and to the politicians that need to be engaged in the whole range of decision making to make these kinds of strategies realized. Okay, so my listeners are probably hearing airplanes and the wind in the background. Where are we and why did we come here? Right, so we're at the Don Edwards Refuge that's managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service with their partners here in the south San Francisco Bay Area, just outside of San Jose, uh, California, and other communities along the southern portion of the bay. And we came here today uh, after four days of intensive work and discussion of ideas to put our feet on the ground, to put our feet on the ground at actual locations, uh, to look at how people who are trying to advance these kinds of approaches. And here at the refuge in this complex of land that's being set aside and being managed to uh, provide environmental conservation outputs, There's also a component of this that's very important for flood resilience, for sea level rise and for uh, storms and tides uh, that uh, subject the the urban area which surrounds the the refuge to uh, flooding. And they have a very uh, large opportunity here with, all told, you know, more than 15,000 acres of land that's being restored back to this complex of habitats, including extensive wetlands. Last question here, at least for me, is uh, what do you think one of the biggest misconceptions or perceptions people have of the Army Corps? And do you want to clear those up or just share something what you love about the Army Corps? Well, the Army Corps of Engineers is a fantastic organization. We're one of the largest, if not the largest, public engineering agency in the world. Our authorities and responsibilities are large and significant. And we are a learning organization. There's no public organization or agency on the planet that has not learned during the course of its history. And we're an old organization, over 200 years old. Um, and there's been a lot of learning and experience gained from that. And that, I think, is well represented in our Engineering with Nature initiative, which we've had underway for eight years, which continues to build on progress and establish momentum within the agency. And this is an expression of that. This work on natural and nature-based features and the support that we have within our agency and within the leadership of our agency to pursue these opportunities and find ways to address the needs and to address the opportunities that are presented by them. Okay, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure. Hey, Adapters, we are back at the workshop, and we are with Kath Brooks from the Environment Agency in the UK. I am also back with Anita. Anita, I'm going to give you the first question. Thanks, Doug. Kath, we have been working here all week on community engagement. Can you talk a little bit about, from your perspective, what is community engagement and why is it important for managing flood risk? Community engagement is about listening to people's needs and their interests. It's really important because if communities don't realize they're at risk from flooding or coastal erosion, um, they won't know what to do. It's a society problem. It's not a problem that any one organization, charity or government organization can solve. So we all have to speak to each other and most importantly, listen. Okay, can you give me just really briefly a background on the organization you work for and how flooding kind of comes up? And because community engagement, obviously, is your way of being that component of dealing with flood management. But just where, where are you coming from? Yeah, sure. So I work for an organization called the Environment Agency, and we 
cover England. And our role is we get given money from the government to manage flood risk and coastal erosion. Okay, so we talked briefly earlier that community engagement doesn't necessarily get the attention it deserves. And sometimes it's sort of over forgotten about. And is that an issue with the work that you're doing? Yes. Yes, it definitely is. We're, I think we're getting a lot better in the UK, but I think we still, organizations still do a lot of thinking between themselves and they go out to communities. I think we still go out to communities too late. I think we need to be going out really early in the decision making process to talk, to define the problem. And yeah, we often still go out when we've come up with proposed solutions. So I think we need to be going out a lot earlier and valuing the role that the community voice can have in um, solving the problem of flood risk management. So if you're an environmentalist or an engineer working on a flood project and you feel like you don't have yourself the expertise to really engage with a community, are there resources or people that those folks can go to to get help and support with proper community engagement? Yes. In the UK, um, I can only talk about our experience. We didn't used to have that many people that were employed 10 years ago with engagement skills in our organization, but now we've got quite a lot. So we've got engagement professionals in all our area offices and uh, in our national office. So yeah, those people can go and get the help from their engagement advisors. But I do think engagement is also part of everyone's role. Um, and I think that needs to be taken on board and more people need to realize that it's just part, whether you're an engineer or a scientist, engagement and talking to communities and listening is, is part of your role as well. So yeah, engagement advisors can help you, especially when situations become contentious or you can get external facilitators to help. But I do also think it's part of everyone's job. And that needs to be valued more in the profession of engineering and science more generally. If you could really sort of summarize, maybe if people are listening out there, because you, you look at the different levels of government in the States, I mean, you're probably not as familiar, but community engagement probably is not getting the attention it deserves. But is there some basic two or three recommendations that you can give people to sort of say how to even get started to do it better? Go out as early as you can. Don't go out with solutions. Go out and listen to what people are concerned about. Talk to people about the problem. Tell a really good story about why they should care. People have got a lot of other things in their lives that they're worried about. So, you know, telling a really good story about why they should be bothered um, and helping them to define what the problem is before you start talking about how to solve it and, and the solutions. We need to do that much more. It's so simple, but for some reason we don't do it as, we just don't do it as often as we should. And I think that we need to get that community ownership of what the problem is. It's a societal problem. It's not an organizational problem that any one organization can solve, but that's how we act. We were too paternalistic. I think that's really important. Defining the problem is not just about the experts sitting around a table with their maps and their charts and their models. That's all important. But the community and different parts of the community should be at that table to talk about what, what is the problem. Okay, last question. We had a symposium today. Which presentation was the very, very, very best one? Oh, wow, that's really hard. Not yours. No, <laughs> I was setting you up for an easy one there. No, no, yours. I'm not going to use this now. No, yours, yours was good. It was, it was really important to tell the story and... Yeah, so that was really good. And we're not, yeah, you did give a really good message about thinking about the audience more and yeah, telling the story. So, of course, it was yours. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, thank you. I probably won't use that. <laughs> Hey, Adapters, we are back at the workshop, and I am with... I'm Ender Murphy from the National Research Council in Canada. I am also with Anita. Anita, can you start us off with a question? Thanks, Doug. Yeah. And your presentation was really interesting today, and you were talking about the role that case studies can play in learning about natural nature-based features. And not all those case studies, as you pointed out, are successful ones. So I just wanted to ask you if you could say in a few words... What, what do you think we learn from our mistakes and our failures, and how does that help us advance these practices for the future? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, we learn a lot from our mistakes. 
the, the challenge with it in this sort of early stage, at least in Canada, of implementing nature-based solutions is that people tend to, to sort of focus in on the mistakes and, and use that as, a, as an excuse not to apply these techniques in, in new projects. So, so I think the purpose of sort of the initiative we're involved in here is really to highlight some of the mistakes that have been made, but couch them as sort of lessons learned so that we can, you know, we can promote the use of these techniques because I think everyone here is fairly confident that this is what where we need to go. This is kind of getting in the weeds here, but you had a slide talking about one of the, what is it, just one of the deep harbors there on the, the western side of the country that's really just a mile or two from the U.S. border. And as you're trying to think about nature-based solutions to this, and you've got this border here, any sort of unique situations that arise out of such proximity to another country? Yeah, I guess, well, well, the thing to consider, right, is that the natural processes don't respect the international borders, right? So I think there's definitely a need to work more closely with our counterparts on, you know, on both sides of the border. And to a certain extent, we're doing that in some places, like on the Great Lakes, uh, there's an international joint commission, uh, which the National Research Council works quite closely with to uh, make sure we're managing water resources and, and flood risk you know, on a sort of a, a binational basis uh, to the best extent possible. Uh, but certainly, you know, with regards to nature-based solutions and that kind of thing, I think we can do more, right, in, in terms of seeking opportunities to, to collaborate. We, we've talked a little bit about community engagement. I don't know if that's part of your day job, but has that kind of come up in Canada? Do you feel like what you're doing there is different than maybe what we've heard in the, the Netherlands? Those people from the Netherlands keep showing up in every conversation. We've got a lot of those folks here, but... What about in Canada? How, how do you feel like on the community engagement side of what you're doing, how you guys are doing? Yeah, community engagement is a is a massive part of a lot of the projects that get implemented in in Canada. A big part of that is is consulting, and and we have a duty to consult as a federal government with uh, with Indigenous peoples to to understand you know sort of uh, the values that they place, particularly when it comes to sort of nature based solutions and the natural environment. A lot of uh, uh, Indigenous cultures use the natural environment in ways that that may be unconventional to, to some of us. And so we need to respect that and make sure we're consulting with them on a daily basis. It, it's not my area of expertise, um, but it's certainly an area I would say that people are extremely conscious of as being important in the context of flood risk management in, in Canada. We've been at this workshop or you've been at this workshop for a few days now. Has there been anything that really has surprised you? Some of these case studies that we've seen, some really amazing work that's going on. And so have have you had one of those moments? Wow, we haven't considered that. We haven't done that. Yeah, I think one of the presentations today on sort of looking at who benefits and who pays from these types of projects um, and trying to seek out innovative ways of uh, pooling resources and funding these types of projects uh, has been really interesting and sort of eye-opening for me. So I'm certainly going to be you know, looking for opportunities to particularly leveraging more private sector financing opportunities, I think is important in order to get some, some momentum with these types of projects in Canada. Okay. Just as a final point here is, is my listeners are hearing your answers and they're thinking, Oh, he's from Canada, but what's up with that accent? Where are you from? I'm from Cork in Ireland. Yeah. And so how did you end up in Canada? Oh, you don't have enough time in your podcast to go through that. So I, I ended up there by way of the Middle East and uh, and London as well for a period. So I, I'm a coastal engineer. You know, I think coastal engineering is a is really a, it's a it's a small global coastal engineering community. So and I like to travel and Canada is a great place. So. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Adapters, we are back at the workshop, and I am with Maria Dillard, a research social scientist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Maria, how did you get involved with this natural and nature-based features project? My group at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST as we call it, has been involved in community resilience more broadly for several years. And one of the 
things that we were noticing with communities that we're working with as we focused on built infrastructure and and buildings and really the physical environment increasingly communities were talking about strategies that were combined more of the non-traditional engineering approaches to solving some of their hazard risks or trying to address their hazard risks and mitigate those a bit and and we realized there really was a, a space within resilience for these multiple approaches and we wanted to be more knowledgeable about those so the idea of getting involved in this guidelines document fits very closely with NIST's work in in codes and standards and setting practices that that are common across the the nation but also the world Okay, my listeners, and that's my clever way of saying myself included, is that I'm just not familiar with a lot of the work that NIST does. And so, okay, you're here doing this kind of work. What are some other examples of similar work that you're doing just to give kind of a better sense of why you guys are involved in these things? Yeah, thanks. That's a, a very good question. NIST has a very broad mission. It It's based in the the Department of Commerce and the, the effort of NIST is to support the economy but it does so in a lot of really different ways. So the engineering laboratory that I sit within works on helping address uh, standards that need to be set for building materials for life safety. We have a group that focuses on earthquake engineering, a group that looks at windstorms, and a, another group that is focused on wildfire. And within that, we have a whole effort focused on, on disasters and the study of disasters and their impact on communities. And increasingly, we have a social science emphasis within this engineering work. And we are looking at economic and social issues and the intersection of those with the physical system so that uh, some of the other work that we're doing is post-disaster. We're going in and assessing how did buildings perform, but how did that affect the social system? So how does the school building's performance affect whether students are educated, whether the, the school can provide the other services to a community? Those kinds of connections are really important for, for what we're interested in and helping to inform and help explain the why, why it's important that you would have buildings built to a certain standard. It's not just about protecting the building so that it's there later, but you want to protect the service to society as well. So that's really important work. Maria, can you say a few words about community engagement? You're doing so much hard work at this workshop to lead the development of that chapter for the guidelines. So what for you stands out in terms of the role that engaging with a community means for those objectives. Yeah, thanks. We were really interested in laying out the how to do this. What are the tools? What are the resources you need? What kinds of individuals and skill sets do you need to help you with this work? And how can we ensure that people and the right people are involved along the way and engaged in a way that that helps get to to good decisions? Community engagement, it's, it's been a puzzle that people have been trying to work on for decades, and you're working on it now for this guidebook. Do you guys at NIST dig into metrics associated with like, because we've had this before, are there great examples where there's been, here's a community engagement and we can parse out why it was effective? And can you learn from that? Is that informing this process? Because it just seems like something we keep working on. You know, we're trying to find the perfect, but there must be some metrics that you try to use to determine if it's been effective. So one of the exciting things that we are working on related to to flooding specifically as an issue is we are conducting a longitudinal study. So that's a study going to the same place and studying the same cases over time. And in this, um, in the case of this community where we've, we've gone now three, we will be going for the third time this winter. We are looking at both buildings and the households. So the residents within the household. And we're looking at the impact of a hurricane that caused a major flood event for this community looking at both the damage and the impacts, societal, kind of the social and economic impacts, and and the recovery process over time. Unfortunately, this community, it's Lumberton, North Carolina, was just hit with the most recent hurricane, Hurricane Florence, and they are now flooded again. We're seeing this repeated event um, in many communities within the U.S. and and increasingly elsewhere in, in the world, where these multiple events are coming more quickly, 
coming at increased intensities and the recovery process isn't finished when the next event hits. And the communities are struggling with what they should do. What is their next step? What are the ways they want to address these issues? And I think that a document like this and the the kinds of people that we're assembling and hopefully the broader community that over time begins to talk about these issues can help us answer some of those questions for, for communities. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed those conversations that we had at the Santa Cruz workshop. We're going to wrap up this episode with a conversation with Todd Bridges, who you heard from earlier, and we're going to take a deep dive in the work that's happening at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. We're going to learn a bit about history there. We're going to learn the history of nature-based engineering, and it's a nice way to wrap up the episode. Hey, Adapters, I'm talking with Dr. Todd Bridges. Dr. Bridges is the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Senior Research Scientist for Environmental Science. He currently leads the Army Corps' Engineering with Nature Initiative, which includes a network of research projects, field demonstrations, and communication activities to promote environmentally sustainable infrastructure development. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. Well, it's good to be here, Doug. Thank you. Again, thanks for coming on the podcast. And I I sort of did an introduction there, but could you expand on your role with the Army Corps? Sure. The Army Corps of Engineers has four senior research scientists. We have some overlap, but my area of work is in environmental science generally. I support our uh, main business lines within the Corps of Engineers in our civil works program. And those business lines are our navigation a program and infrastructure related to the 25,000 miles of navigation channel that the Corps is responsible for in the United States. Our flood risk management program, which includes thousands of miles of levees and other structures designed to reduce flood risks in the United States. And then our ecosystem restoration program, uh, which, as the name implies, is focused on restoring ecosystems like the Everglades and other notable landscape features in the United States. So where are you actually based out of? So I'm based in uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi, at the uh, Engineer Research and Development Center. We have about a 500-acre campus here that has been uh, at this location since 1930. The facility first opened up in 1930 under the name the Waterways Experiment Station, and its origin is based in the flood of 1927, which was a very large event affecting uh, the Mississippi River and tributaries, a very serious uh, natural catastrophe at the time. And following that event, the U.S. Congress expanded the Corps' work in the area of river and flood engineering and Vicksburg, Mississippi, because it's on the Mississippi River and for some other reasons was selected as the location for that facility. Uh, The mission has grown to encompass other areas of work beyond river engineering since that time, Uh, notably in my case with uh, the passage of the Clean Water Act and other environmental legislation in the 1970s, there was the formation of the Environmental Laboratory as a part of the seven laboratories that currently comprise the Engineer Research and Development Center. Four of those laboratories are based here in Vicksburg. Okay, so next question, why is the Army Corps involved with engineering with nature? Well, the Army Corps of Engineers for more than 200 years has had responsibilities uh, to manage a variety of water infrastructure. Uh, we've had this role for a long time, particularly in regards to navigation and maintaining navigable waterways in the United States. And those missions, the missions the Corps has, have grown to include other forms of water infrastructure. But we manage a lot of water infrastructure, more than uh, 500 reservoirs in the United States, which provide water for communities. But most of those projects have primarily a a flood risk management uh, function, primarily. Um, But there are the dams associated with uh, those reservoirs. We, for example, generate with our hydropower facilities uh, nearly 25% of the hydropower in the United States. Um, So we have a a lot of physical asset and infrastructure that we manage in the United States. And a part of that is how do you efficiently manage 
that infrastructure and produce value on a sustained basis from that infrastructure. And our Engineering with Nature initiative, which began formally in uh, 2010, was begun in order to find ways to more efficiently and more effectively manage and develop infrastructure. And we do that by using science and engineering to produce operational efficiencies. We also want to use natural processes to maximum benefit um, and thereby be able to increase the value that our projects and our infrastructure provide, including diversifying that value to include not only the economic benefits that that infrastructure may have initially been developed to provide, but to also include environmental and social benefit streams. And then finally, to find ways to use collaboration and partnering effectively to be able to accomplish these goals that I've set out. We have a long history of uh, within the Corps of Engineers uh, going back decades, I would submit, in using uh, natural systems and processes. So what we're trying to do is draw from the history of those successes and expand our abilities and our capability to engineer with nature in the management and operation of water infrastructure. I'm just curious with this kind of history of using engineering with nature. Is it t- completely integrated with what the Army Corps is doing? Or uh, you sometimes sense that, okay, there's the folks doing engineering with nature, then there's the other folks doing the more traditional ways of doing things. I mean, do, is there a real attempt at the Army Corps to kind of integrate all those things together? And so it, that there's sort of uh, the use of engineering with nature more, more often, if that makes sense. No, I, under- I understand what you're, uh, you're asking, Doug. I mean, as I, indicated previously, I can uh, point to examples of very good practice in respect to engineering with nature 10, 20, 30, you know, years ago within the Corps of Engineers. So what's not new in the sense that it hasn't ever been done before, but what we're working to do within the Corps is to make maybe more exceptional projects in the past more commonplace in the future. Of course, that involves infusing, you know, innovation into our practices. And when you're dealing with a large organization like the Corps of Engineers, which is uh, about 35,000 employees across the country and in other countries in the world, you have a lot of communication that you need to do as a part of infusing innovation and in practice uh, within the organization. Uh, but I'd have to say that over the last eight years, we've made considerable progress and have demonstrated and, and communicated quite effectively within the organization so that I think in the future um, that we'll be utilizing these these approaches to project development and operation uh, much more effectively than maybe we have in the recent past. Could you give an example of one of these exceptional examples that you just mentioned? Like, you know, just briefly kind of describe why it's exceptional. I'll give you one example at a place called Horseshoe Bend on the Atchafalaya River in the state of Louisiana. It's a portion of the river, as the name implies, that has a bend in it where we have to dredge uh, regularly in order to maintain the navigation channel between the Gulf of Mexico and Morgan City, Louisiana. And our New Orleans District of the Corps of Engineers was literally running out of places to create wetlands along the banks and the shoreline of that river. Um, and they were left with the, uh, the problem of what to do with this sediment that was being dredged from the channel. And what they hypothesized would have was that if they placed that sediment in the middle of the river, that they could utilize the energy and the processes of the river itself to create a mid-river island within that portion of the river. So that's what they began to do more than 10 years ago, is to place the sediment in the middle of the river, provide the resource, and allow the river itself to engineer the feature. So what developed over this decade of practice was a more than 80-acre mid-river island wetland complex, a beautiful habitat, that was formed not through uh, the use of rock or other physical structures, if you will, but the river's own energy. Now, in addition to the environmental value that's been produced in this 80-plus acre feature, that 
island, once it developed, has also been providing engineering benefits. The channel moved from the west side of the river to the east side of the river to a more efficient position for the purposes of navigation. It actually shortened the distance and eased the navigation around that bend. And it also resulted in more efficient processing of sediment within that portion of the river, such that we have to dredge less frequently in that portion of the river than we did in the past, so that we're saving literally millions of dollars every year and less dredging. So we've got environmental and engineering benefits and the evidence of recreational use of this island feature by local community members is quite evident. And we also have social benefits coming from that one project. And it all resulted from a relatively simple and straightforward change in operational practice. All right. So you're obviously a big proponent of the use of nature for flood management. But what are some of the, the big barriers that you have to deal with when, when you're trying to do that? One of the most, I think, significant technical challenges in regard to using, say, nature-based solutions for flood risk management is understanding and predicting the performance of those strategies uh, in regard to flood risk management. So what do I mean by that? If we're going to use, uh, say, an, a constructed island or an expansive network of wetlands or a combination of an island and wetland network to attenuate waves uh, that are generated by storms, we need to understand how that feature or that composite feature is going to respond to those waves. And and understanding that process from a point of view of the physics and the engineering is more complicated when you're dealing with something that's as involved and complex and involves sediment and plants than it is if you're trying to predict how wave forces would affect a concrete wall, for example or a stone breakwater. I think one of the more significant uh, challenges for us as a technical community and a research community is to develop the evidence base, uh, the data, and the engineering tools that will allow us to project and, and forecast the engineering performance of these strategies in, re in regards to managing uh, flood risks. Okay, so you gave a, a really good example uh, of the domestic case of this, but do, is there an international example of uh, of nature for flood management that you could share that's really impressed you, or you've there worked several, on? <laughs> there, yeah, yeah, there 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 are several fantastic international examples of the use of what we would call here engineering with nature or nature based solutions for flood risk management. Um, one of the projects that I have visited is called the Nordvard. And this is a project in the Netherlands. It was a large area, 10,000 acres, that had been poldered. That is, it had a dike or a levee uh, that surrounded this entire area to keep water out. And it is an agricultural area, by and large. And what they, what they did in the Netherlands, over a period of nearly 10 years, through negotiations with landowners, were able to create purposeful engineered would say breaches in the dikes that surrounded this polder. In fact, it was, I believe, three specific uh, breaches were constructed to allow this area, this 10 portions of this 10,000 acres to be inundated or flooded during high water events. And what that allows, uh, what that produces is much lower water levels upstream and downstream from this feature. Essentially, you're providing kind of a relief valve, if you will, for high water in the river. Um, in fact, it lowers water levels for a neighboring community that's, I think, uh, a little less than eight or 10 kilometers from this site, lowers water levels at the dike or the levee by some 30 centimeters because uh, this project has been created. Now what you have is a mixed landscape of agriculture and wildlife area that is beautiful. They've incorporated a bike path all around this feature that on the beautiful fall day that I was there was being utilized by any number of people. But that's just one example of using landscape and using nature to provide room for water and flooding. And these kinds of projects have been replicated elsewhere in Europe and in the UK to show the potential of using landscapes and 
natural features to to provide resilience and to lower flood risks and damages. Todd, I had two, actually now I have two follow-up questions. I really like that example that you gave a few moments ago about the coastal systems and the challenge understanding what the impacts are of, of the systems in terms of reducing storm surge potentially because it's a living and a dynamic um, system. So it's harder to quantify than than the wall might be. So I'm just wondering if you could comment a bit on your experiences and your thoughts about that is a challenge and potentially a limitation of engineering with nature. But have you seen the plus side in terms of the the flexibility that that might build into a system in combination with with a, a wall or gray infrastructure to allow for future climate change that is also hard to predict? No, that, that's a great question, Anita. I think uh, sometimes you will hear uh, this discussion of nature-based solutions for flood risk management presented as an either-or. That is, either you have a conventional uh, say, hard infrastructure approach, or you have nature-based approach. When in fact, I think most of the opportunities uh, that exist are going to involve a combination of conventional and nature-based. So really the question that faces, say, project teams and local communities is what blend or what balance of conventional and nature-based makes sense for my context and my problem. And, and of course, the, the answer is going to vary depending upon a whole range of factors that exist that are driven by the physical system, the environmental system, and the amount of assets, basically the, the, the community context for those sites. And that's really the approach that the core, I think, is taking to this. Back in uh, 2013, following Hurricane Sandy, we wrote, in fact, a relatively brief technical policy statement about the use of what we call nature-based approaches, natural and nature-based approaches or features. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that policy statement basically boils down to we see the value of an, in a, in an integrated approach involving both conventional and nature-based solutions. And you sort of alluded to this earlier, but how do guidelines help advance the practice of nature-based approaches? And I know as we talk about international examples and domestic examples, it probably gets complicated very easily. But, you know, what sort of guidelines are you using? Guidelines of practice are quite important for advancing the way a, a technical community, for example, the technical community involved in flood risk management engineering actually does work. And we currently have a project underway in which we are leading a consortium of organizations from a number of countries uh, in the development of international guidelines for the use of natural and nature-based features for flood risk management. And our intention with this guideline is to collect, coalesce international practice in a way that is organized and is accessible to practitioners in the United States and in other countries around the world so they can see more comprehensively what has been accomplished and how to proceed with implementing these kinds of techniques with some awareness of what the uncertainties are and how those uncertainties need to be managed so that these projects can be implemented in a credible and a responsible way. But guidelines are very important because they provide a way of a kind of codifying what good practice is. And good practice now is being essentially developed across the world. And so it doesn't reside in just one country like the United States. It exists in many different places. And that's the reason why we've organized this project as an international effort to do the best we can at collecting that good practice wherever it is. How can you tell if like these methods are working? And I just imagine there's a flooding event and someone in your position, you know, okay, something really went wrong or you could say, oh, it could have been a lot worse had we not done X, Y, and Z. Are there things you can do before, I guess, that big next rain event that say that, okay, we know what we're doing here is working? Well, there are lessons to be learned in any disaster. I think we saw that, for example, uh, recently with Hurricane Sandy. It was actually after Hurricane Sandy that uh, some uh, observations, important observations were made in regard to some a core of engineers projects, a 
we would call natural and nature-based projects. These projects took the form of beach and dune engineering projects. Many of these projects performed very well during that particular hurricane and, in fact, uh, resulted in large uh, savings and avoidance of damages. And so that introduced, at that time, a dialogue about how we can make use of these techniques uh, more broadly. And that gave rise to our effort at developing guidelines for natural and nature-based features. But the other uh, point here is that when you have a, a disaster, a flood, after that event, the need and the sense of urgency to kind of rebuild and restore is quite intense. And that really kind of necessitates having plans in place in advance of disasters uh, to revision, if you will, or remodel the system. In many places, I believe around the world, the systems are being put back together the way they were before they fell down. <laughs> and if we want to make use of for example, nature-based solutions for flood risk management, we need to be thinking ahead of ourselves, if you will, in regards to these kinds of events so that we have plans in place to reconfigure systems into a more efficient and more effective form so that the next time we have a similar or maybe even a larger event, the system is going to respond in a more favorable way. Here's a bit of a pivot, but I have quite a few younger listeners, young career folks, or even people going to university. And if they're looking to get into this field and especially looking at it in perspective of, okay, they're getting to climate change adaptation, they're doing engineering, hydrology, watershed and flood management, what areas of study would you recommend that they take? You know, how, how do they kind of get to where you're at? Well, I would have to say this, this is at a very exciting time. If you're entering your high school and college or postgraduate training, um, and you have an interest in this area, this is an exciting time to pursue uh, education, a technical education in this particular area of work. There's a lot going on in the area of research and a lot that's going on at universities uh, around the world in this area. In fact, in our Engineering with Nature initiative within the core, we've been working closely with universities in the United States in the development of curricula that support exactly this kind of approach and practice. Uh, this last uh, spring term in 2018, we co-taught a seminar on engineering with nature at Texas A&M University. And we hope to be able to do that again in the future. We're currently uh, collaborating uh, with faculty at the uh, engineering college at the University of Georgia, which has recently uh, stood up uh, an institute, the Institute for Resilient Infrastructure Systems, or IRIS, which is specifically uh, tuned to finding ways to incorporate natural systems and nature-based approaches into water infrastructure. So there are many opportunities, and I think the educational system and the, and the curricula that exist within, say, engineering and environmental programs at universities are evolving now, I think, in response to these opportunities to engineer with nature. Well, that's pretty encouraging. Okay, so these issues are very complicated, and you're dealing with a lot of stakeholders. And I think your, your experience is a lot of people have opinions on what uh, engineers should be doing in these situations. And, I, you know, what, what are some of the bigger challenges as an engineer in, with dealing with environmentalists or biologists who, who are also important stakeholders in this process? That's a very good question. And the, the fourth element that I mentioned earlier that we are working to use and, and uh, leverage within our Engineering with Nature initiative is finding ways to work collaboratively and through partnerships in realizing uh, and implementing these kinds of approaches. There's a very important social context for advancing these kinds of techniques. And working across the perspectives and the interests that exist in the in the uh, diverse stakeholder environment that you have in in flood risk management uh, presents a lot of challenges and there's a social science component to this that's every bit as significant as the natural or physical science component of this 
I think it's true in my experience that the social science component of these problems has received less attention than the physical science component of these problems. And for us to be able to make more progress and to implement, you know, better solutions for the future, we're going to have to find a way to address the social science uh, considerations more effectively than we have in the past. And, and we're working to, to that end with, in our engineering with nature initiative, we've had a series of engagements, for example, with landscape architects who in particular have a skill set that's quite useful in regards to engaging communities and finding ways to incorporate uh, social considerations and human use uh, into engineering. We have uh, plans over the next uh, several months, in fact, to hold a technical meeting, a workshop on the social sciences, specifically in relation to engineering with nature, as a way of finding uh, targets uh, that we can pursue specifically to advance this need that we have to take social science considerations into more of, of our practice. So thanks, Todd. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you sharing your expertise with my listeners. It was a pleasure, Doug. This is such an important area of work, I believe, and has such great potential and opportunity for not only us in the United States, but for elsewhere in the world. I'm happy to talk about it whenever I have a chance. Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. That is a wrap, Adapters. Hey, Anita, what did you think of the episode? I thought it was really interesting, Doug, and a lot of fun for me to meet some of these people and hear their points of view and some of the issues that they're also wrestling with. I thought some of the points that came forward, for example, Todd talked about the importance of partnering and collaboration in meeting our goals. And I think that's such a fundamental aspect. And it, it sounds like a cliche. Oh, yes, we have to partner. But it really is so important when you're dealing with a complicated issue like flooding. And I think there are skills that we all need to learn to be better partners and to get better at partnering. He also talked about communication. And you and I, Doug, have talked about this a lot in terms of what kinds of communication and how do we infuse innovation, as Todd said, into the way that we communicate these issues. And I know that something that we are trying to address within WWF and, and you're being creative with the work that you do, there's just so much more of that that I think we need to do. And that is part of what we try to do in our program in terms of learning from disasters. And then lastly, someone made a comment about, it may have been taught about that this is an exciting time to be in this work. And it's a, an exciting time to not only be a professional trying to learn and grow and support these emerging practices, but also to be a student. And your listeners have heard me say this before, but I can't say it enough. We have got to engage the next generation of practitioners. And we are fortunate that we can try to influence that at the student level and the creativity and innovation that students bring to this issue all around the world, not just in the U.S., I think is really key to growing a successful effort in this space. Well, we only captured a few voices, but I want my listeners to know at the workshop itself, it's just the diversity of participants, and these are people from all over the world. And Todd mentioned it a bit in, in his interviews that what are sort of the standards and, you know, the whole point of this thing is developing some guidelines. And it's great to know that some of the other countries out there, hopefully, who have had success that we can learn from them. And we are trying to create some standards that apply across many different countries. So I thought that was very interesting because you really want to learn from your mistakes. <laughs> you know, you don't, you get in your silo in your own country and sometimes you're not open minded about what works elsewhere. And I think Todd's created a, a nice venue to kind of find what's really working. And he did talk about sometimes maybe the Netherlands doesn't like what we're doing in the U.S. and hopefully they're using this forum to let us know and we can learn from that. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I think the flip side of that is also important. And I hear that a lot in my work about, well, how do we know these natural and nature-based approaches work? And it is difficult, particularly for engineers, to get their mind around the fact that we can draw an engineering approach and measure and quantify what 
type and amount of water that engineering should accommodate. It is a little bit harder with natural and nature-based features, and people are working very hard to try to develop that understanding and standardize it. The flip side, though, in my mind, is given the uncertainties with climate and land use and many other issues, we need to build flexibility into our plans. And the hard engineering does not give us that kind of flexibility. And so there's a whole downside also to knowing exactly how much water any particular method is going to deal with. So that's what I find really fascinating and not easy, but interesting bringing different professions and sectors together to say, what do we all know? How do we know it? And how can we work together to try to reduce risk for communities, but also benefit from the services and the features that a a healthy environment can bring to an issue? Yeah, and I guess my biggest concern when I think of, you know, it, it takes a while to develop these sort of things. I know they're, they're going to have another meeting in, I think, Ireland or Scotland in, in a few months to keep working on these guidelines. And these things take time, but at the same time, other, I guess, sectors are baking in bad practices. And, you know, I feel like there's just this window for using nature-based solutions. And, you know, we have to get out there. And I, the work that you're doing is critically important. And I just, I hope that they can really make the work that they're doing incredibly relevant to other sectors and they have the appropriate communication strategy and, you know, we're using this podcast to kind of highlight the work they're doing. And so I, I hope the timing is quicker rather than later. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's a continual struggle, but that's again, brings me back to partnering and partnerships because within that large group, the engineering with nature program and with my own program, there's many different groups doing different things at different times. And so we're not all sitting and waiting for the next guideline to come out. There's implementation going on. There's training going on. There's learning going on. There's documentation going on. So that's part of the challenge as well is keeping your eye on all of that and making it available and learning from it as we go. But I can rest assured, Doug, we're not sitting and waiting for the next guideline to come out. People are doing as well. And so we don't want to bake in bad plans, but we also have to do something. <laughs> Good to know. All right, let's wrap this up. So what can they expect next? We're going to be wrapping this up in with a fourth episode. What are we going to talk about in that fourth episode? Well, in the fourth episode, your listeners can join us going around the world talking to you and I are not going to travel around the world, but through the advantages of technology, we're going to talk to folks who are in other parts of the world to learn about what are they seeing and experiencing and doing in their areas, in their neighborhoods, in their communities. And so it will be a frontline discussion. And I think that will be really interesting and challenging as well. It will be an exciting wrap-up to all this great content we've generated so far. Okay, Anita, again, it's been a pleasure. We're <laughs> we're in the final stretch here in Episode 3. It's been a great journey, but any final thoughts? No, again, I want to thank you for what you're doing, and I appreciate the feedback and comments that you've had from your listeners. Folks, please keep that coming because we learn from that as well, and thanks for your interest. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Todd, Kath, Inda, and Maria, and Anita for participating in this episode. As you can see, experts from around the world are on the job of coming up with nature-based solutions to flooding and disaster management. It's not easy work. I hope you are encouraged by the partnerships and collaborations that are happening with countries on these issues. And again, thanks to Anita for joining in with me on these conversations. And also, please have a listen to episodes one and two. You can find them on the website. We cover a lot of ground. And if you want more information on my guest or the green guide that was mentioned many times, links are in my show notes. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Daps and ask to join, and I will approve it right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Don't forget, please send me a letter if you have some thoughts or just even describing what you're doing or what you're learning from the podcast. I'm doing a new a new thing, Letters from Adapters, and I'd love to read yours. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. I love hearing from you. It's definitely the highlight of my week, so please do reach out. 
Okay, check out the website. It's a new website. It's a new improved website. Go to americadaps.org. There's a search function, and you can now look at the archive episodes really easily. You can search by sea level rise, flooding, public health. It'll bring up any relevant episode. All this information is in my show notes, especially that link to the donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.